Okay, well let us take up our Bibles again as we get ready for the ministry of the Word. I invite you please to turn in them to the 16th chapter of Leviticus, which again if you're using the Pew Bible can be found on page 101, the 16th chapter of Leviticus. I would have put it on the back of the sermon outline in your handout, but it was too much text. <laughs> I would have had to have shrunk the font to like eight-point font, and then no one would be able to read it anyway. So instead, what you do have on the back of your sermon outline is, an, is Article 21 of the Belgic Confession. We're not going to read it, but uh, Article 21 of the Belgic Confession talks about the work of Christ as our high priest. And that's kind of, in a sense, going to be our focus this morning as we look at the priestly work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at how that priestly work is symbolized or shadowed in the Day of Atonement sacrifice that we see detailed in Leviticus 16. And then we'll look again at uh, Hebrews 9 that we read earlier and see how that, that shadow then is fulfilled in the work of Christ. But before we hear God's word read, let us uh, go before him in a time of prayer, asking for his blessing upon our time this morning. Father God, as we get ready now to study your word, we pray as always that the same spirit who inspired your word would give us illumination. Help us to see, Lord, in these words and on these pages, not just a sacrifice that was established for the Old Testament people of old, which it is that, but also how that ritual points to the gracious and merciful and amazing and awesome work that Jesus does for us that brings full and complete atonement for our sins. Again, we ask for your blessing upon our time. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Leviticus. I don't know if this is the first sermon you've ever heard in Leviticus. It's certainly the first sermon I've ever preached in Leviticus. So, Leviticus 16, starting in verse... One, again, please continue to give your attention to God's word as it is read. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at simply any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Then Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it 
and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull. And sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. And he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it and sanctify it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness." Then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his body with water in the holy place, put on his garments, and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. The fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar, and he who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp, and they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh, and their offal. Then he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. This shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who sojourns among you. For on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as priest in his father's place shall make atonement and put on the linen clothes, the holy garments. Then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar 
And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the congregation. This shall be an everlasting statute for you, to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Well, it should be no shock, as we even just read through that passage, that atonement is bloody business. Right? It is a bloody, messy business in order to make atonement for the sins of the people. And it should also be of no surprise that the Bible makes a big deal about sin. The Bible makes a big deal about sin because sin is an offense before a holy and righteous God, an infinite God, one who is infinitely holy, infinitely righteous. And when we sin, we are, in a sense, offending an infinite being. But in our day and age, we don't look at sin that way, right? If we even use the word sin at all. Uh, we don't look at sin that way. We, we downplay it. We, we, we treat it as something that is just part of human nature, right? No one's perfect. Everyone will acknowledge it. Nobody is perfect. So whatever we do as far as sin goes, we, we downplay it. We make light of it. It's just a mistake. In fact, you even see now how far we've downplayed sin in, in how we see in our culture people identifying with sin. Right, you know, uh, I don't need to go into it, but you know, we take pride. Some some of us even take pride in our sin, using that as an identifying feature of our own nature. We downplay sin, yet as we saw here in this passage, sin is serious business. It is serious business. Once a year, the Jewish people were to make atonement for their sins before God in order that God will then be able to dwell with them as He has always desired to dwell with them. So as we look at this passage, we're going to, again, do this a little differently than what we normally do. I am not going to walk through verse by verse and describe everything in detail in this passage. We're going to look at it sort of from a more high-level view because what I want to get across here as we look at our Advent series, is what is the work of Messiah? We've been looking at the coming of Messiah. We saw how Messiah was promised back in Genesis 3.15. We saw how how the promise of Messiah was then reiterated, if you will, to Abraham in Genesis 12. And it was told that through Abraham, which is really through the seed of Abraham, the coming Messiah, the nations will be blessed. So this Messiah has been promised, this Messiah is coming to bring blessings, but what is the purpose of his coming? What is the work that Messiah will do? So we're going to look at that more deeply. And we're going to look at that in three ways. We're going to see what our greatest need is. Because what Messiah comes to do is to satisfy our greatest need. And we're going to see then how that, that, what the work of Messiah, how that is shadowed or symbolized in the Old Testament sacrificial system centered on this Day of Atonement. And then we're going to see how that work of Messiah then is fulfilled in the New Testament as we will look again at Hebrews 9 and see how the work of Christ uh, fulfills this Day of Atonement that we see here in Leviticus 16. 
So the theme that I want to get across this morning as we look at this, as we look at this text, and as we look at these two texts, really, is that the work of Messiah, the work of Messiah is seen in his atoning work before God on behalf of his people. The work of Messiah is seen in his atoning work before God on behalf of his people. So as I mentioned earlier, our greatest need, as we've been learning throughout our Advent series, the coming of Messiah is based on a promise of God to bring blessings to the nations of the earth. And that promise was, was made because of what Adam failed to do in the garden. Adam was created, and he was created to uh, be in covenant with God, and he was given a covenant. He was given the promise of eternal life, the promise of everlasting life. It was held before him. If only Adam would show his obedience to God by following the one command that God gave him. Do not eat of the tree. And that's exactly what Adam did. And Adam failed. And he failed to keep covenant. He broke covenant with God. And in the process of, of bringing restoration, in the process of bringing the curse, God shows us that silver lining in the promise of Messiah, that there would come one who would be a, the head-crushing seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, who would come into this world, as Paul will say in Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time, when the time was ripe, Jesus came into the world, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus came to right the wrongs that Adam committed in the garden. He came to reverse the curse, if you will. He came to bring reconciliation and restoration and redemption to his people. Because in the garden, the original purpose of the garden, the original goal, if you will, of creation was for God to dwell among his people. We see that fulfilled in the book of Revelation. If you've been with us through that series, when we looked at that, what happens in the last two chapters of Revelation? Jesus, Christ, uh, Jesus comes in glory. The new heavens and the new earth come down. And we know, now see that the people of God will dwell with their God forever. That has always been the purpose of creation, for God to dwell with his people. That was the goal of the original creation. God would dwell with his people in paradise of the garden. Had Adam succeeded, God would have dwelled with his people forever. So that they would be his people and he would be their God, that covenant language. The problem, of course, then, is that the sin that Adam committed not just affected himself, right? It's, it's not that Adam's sin affected himself. We learn this in Romans 5, how Adam's sin then brought sin and death into the world, and then death then is seen all throughout humanity because we all sin. You want proof of the fact that there is a curse in this world? We all die. That is a proof of the curse in this world. I've been here for two and a half years. I have done eight funerals. I am done doing funerals. I, I pray that the Lord comes soon so I don't have to do another funeral. But the fact of the matter is death is a, an evidence of the curse. Adam's sin brought death into the world. And not only that, but it, in, where, where God wanted to dwell with his people uh, and, and have a perfect, unbroken communion with them, sin 
uh, damaged that. Sin destroyed that. Sin then created a, an unbridgeable chasm between God and man. And it's a chasm that God will not cross over because he cannot dwell in sin. And man cannot cross over because man cannot restore this relationship. This is a problem. To quote James Lovell from Apollo 13, Houston, we have a problem, and that is sin. This is our greatest problem. Sin is the greatest problem the human race has ever faced. It is our greatest existential threat is sin. So our greatest need then is to restore and resolve the sin problem. And if, if you've read through the Old Testament, you notice that everything that, that, that man has done since the fall in the garden has, has failed to, to satisfy the sin problem. Right? right out of the bat, in Genesis 4, you have Abel and Cain. Right? Abel offers a, a sacrifice to God of, of the first, the best of his livestock. And God is pleased with that sacrifice. But that sacrifice does not atone for sin. You look at uh, Noah. When Noah comes off the ark and, and, and builds an altar to God and offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God, that does not atone for sin. What does Abraham do when he comes into the promised land? One of the first things he does is he builds an altar to God and offers a sacrifice. That did not atone for sin. Isaac, Jacob, they've all offered sacrifices to God. None of them atoned for our sin. None of them could save or solve humanity's sin problem. And the only way to bridge that gap then is to have God initiate that, right? We cannot reach up to God on our own. God has to stoop down and bridge this gap himself. And that's why we, say, we see then, we fast forward 400 years to the Old Testament, uh, to the book of Exodus, when God calls Moses. Now, it's interesting, just a little side note, right? When you turn from Genesis chapter 50 to Exodus chapter 1, that, that, you turn that page and 400 years of time have, has passed by. And we, you know, we think about it, it's like we don't really think about the passage of time so much and the, the vast amounts of time that you see passing in the Bible, but think about it. 400 years ago, we weren't even a country. <laughs> 400 years ago, I think maybe you might start seeing some of the earliest English settlers even beginning to come over to this, to this country and start to form settlements. You know, the, the old Jamestown settlement with John Smith and Pocahontas, that was like in the early 1600s. 400 years ago, most of our ancestors were still in Europe. 400 years ago, I mean, the British Empire wasn't even an empire yet. 400 years is a long time. And 400 years... Uh, we see the people of, of Israel are in Egypt and they become enslaved. They are enslaved for 400 years. And God then calls Moses to be a deliverer of his people, to, to save, to rescue them. And even Moses' life, in a sense, is a picture of Christ, if you will, to rescue them from their slavery in Egypt to the promised land. But again, all of this is God uh, stooping down to, to solve humanity's sin problem. So after the Exodus, right, we're not going to go through the story of the Exodus, but Moses, you know the story well, the ten plagues, and then afterward uh, he leads the people out, and as they're on their way to the promised land, they stop at the foot of Mount Sinai. 
And it's at, it's at, at that point that God then begins to deal with his people as a covenant people. Uh, if you're inclined, you can turn to Exodus 19. If you're in Leviticus 16, it should just be a, several pages to the left there. In Exodus, sorry, yeah, Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6. So Israel has been redeemed by God. They have been brought out of slavery in Egypt. They are now at the foot of Sinai. And in chapter 19 of Exodus, verse 4, God is speaking. And he says to the Egyptians, or sorry, to the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. In other words, God is like, I did this. Moses was my instrument. I did this. I saved you. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So God says this to Moses. Moses will relay this on to the people of Israel. But this, again, is God here seeking to establish and reconnect and, and, and resolve that sin problem that has separated him from mankind. And he, he then picks Israel to be his special people. And he tells them, if you will obey my covenant, then you will be my treasured possession. And you will be to me a holy nation. That is God's desire here. God calls them to be a holy nation. Yes, to reflect his holy purity, but also holiness in the sense of you are set apart. You are my special people and you will live as my special people. And then Moses, in the rest of Exodus, receives instructions to build a tabernacle. So you know the tabernacle. That's a little traveling tent that went with them all throughout the wilderness. But that tabernacle was God's dwelling place among his people. God's home, if you will. God's throne room. And at the end of the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 40, when the tabernacle is finally finished and it's finally erected, when God's home has been built, you see the glory of God then cover the tabernacle. In chapter 40, starting in verse 34, The tabernacle has been established, it has been built, it has been set up. And then we see here the cloud, that is the glory cloud of God, covered the tabernacle of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. When the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle... The children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So here you have the tabernacles erected, the God's throne room, if you will. And when the glory of God fills it, it's so fabulous and so glorious that Moses himself cannot enter. Why can he not enter? Because Moses himself is unholy. Moses cannot go into the presence of God uncovered, if you will. 
So you get this tabernacle set up. So again, you still have this problem. God is dwelling among his people, but again, sin is still a barrier between God and his people. That's why when you get to the book of Leviticus, you get all of these ritual laws that God then gives to his priests in order to, to sort of keep the people prepared, to keep the people as a holy nation so that God can dwell among them. All of these sacrifices that you see in Leviticus are meant to solve, in a sense, the sin problem between God and man. These sacrificial systems contained very, very detailed instructions for the priesthood to follow in order for Israel to remain ritually pure. I'm going to make that distinction here because when you read through the book of Leviticus, if you've ever read through the book of Leviticus, you, know, you, you, you see the emphasis that, that God places on cleanness, on purity. You are either in a status of clean before the Lord or you're in a status of unclean before the Lord. And if you are unclean, then you could not take part in the worship of Israel. You had to do certain things to be clean. Now, this is, I'm not talking about like having dirt on your body and taking a shower so you're clean. We are talking ritual purity, the ability to, to, to allow God to dwell in their presence. And even though these sacrifices were performed, God's presence was still, in a sense, veiled. God would dwell among them as long as they were ritually clean, but even then, you notice, right, the, the way the tabernacle is structured. You've got the holy place, and there's that veil. And as we read in Leviticus 16, the high priest could not just go in there any old time he wanted to. He had to go in there once a year, and he had to be prepared to do so. So even though God is dwelling with his people, he is doing this in a very veiled, very protected way. So all of these, all these ritual services that the Israelites had all centers then on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is like the day in the Jewish calendar. Okay? It's the center point. In fact, it's almost literally the center point of the Pentateuch. If you consider the five books of Moses, Leviticus is in the middle, and chapter 16 is in the middle of Leviticus. It's like everything sort of falls into that center point. The Day of Atonement is the most important day in the Jewish religious calendar. You can go back to Leviticus 16. We're going to just kind of hit some highlights here. We notice in chapter 16, the verses 1 and 2, that the, the, these instructions come in the aftermath of the death of Nadab and Abihu. If you remember those two fellows, that's, those were Aaron's two oldest sons. And what did they do? Well, once the tabernacle was erected, and once the, the, you know, the sacrificial laws were given... Nadab and Abihu decided to go into the Holy of Holies and offer what they call profane fire. Right? They, they, they did not follow God's prescription and they were punished for it. So the Lord says to Moses, tell Aaron your brother, you cannot simply come into the tabernacle any old time you want. You cannot come into my holiest of holies any old time you want like your sons did. And look what happened to your two oldest sons. They were smoked, if you will. They, got, they, got, they were cut to pieces at that point. So the, the prescription here is a warning to come only if you have prepared yourself. And this is not God being mean. This is God saying, this is for your protection. If you come into my holy presence unprepared, you're, you're, death will come upon you, is what he's saying here. 
And then in verses 3 through 10, we see sort of like the, the general outline for the ritual as Aaron has to do so many things. He has, to, he has to bring a bull. He has to bring a ram. He has to make offerings for himself. He has to put on special holy clothes that he only puts on once a year. He has to then take these two goats uh, from, from Israel, and we'll talk about the goats in a moment. But what we're seeing here is that before Aaron can even offer atonement for the people, what is he doing here? He's offering atonement for himself. Why? Because Aaron is a sinner. <laughs> right? Every high priest who comes and does this, will, you know, the, the, you know, God mentions this later in Leviticus 16, every high priest had to do this. Why? Because every high priest is a sinner. The high priest cannot go into the presence of God unless he first atones for himself. He cannot do the work of atoning for God's people unless he atones first for himself. And then the process we see in verses 11 through 28, he offers these these two animals, the blood is then is, uh, sprinkled all over the place. The blood atones, the blood covers. And then you see this ritual with these two goats, which is very important. The two goats, you had one that was, uh, they cast lots. One was God's goat, the other was the goat for the people. God's goat was sacrificed. And that sacrifice shows you that in this ritual, instead of God pouring out his wrath on the people for their sin... He, in effect, pours his wrath. The goat stands as a, as a substitute for the people. Again, all of this should, should show and point the way to Christ, who is a substitute for us. This goat is a substitute for the people, and it is sacrificed to appease the wrath of God, to provide atonement. The second goat, the scapegoat, you see Aaron here does this, this ritual where he lays his hands on the goat and then confesses the sins of the people. In a sense, ritualistically, transferring the sins to that goat and that goat is cast out, thereby uh, picturing the fact that the sins are removed from the presence of the people in this ritual. So God's wrath is satisfied in the first goat. God's forgiveness of sins is pictured in the second goat. And then the passage ends in verses 29 to 34 to show that this is something that the, that the priests had to do every single year. It is, it is an everlasting uh, atonement, an everlasting ritual, a perpetual ritual, if you will. And the Day of Atonement ritual then, in symbol form, made Israel ritually clean so that God could dwell in their presence. Again, all of this is so that God can dwell in their presence. So it accomplished two things. It appeased God's wrath for their sins, and it removed their sins from them. But there's still a problem. And the problem is that this was only a ritual. It had to be repeated every year. Every year. You, as we read through this, you notice how much blood is being spoken of here. Now multiply that every year. Blood all the time. Blood all the time so that God could dwell among his people. There has to be a better way. And there is a better way, thanks be to God. Because in Isaiah 53, you don't have to turn there, but in Isaiah 53... We read this a couple of weeks back. There is the promised servant, the one who would come to make atonement. In Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, we learn of this servant that he was wounded for our transgressions. He, the servant, was bruised for our iniquities. 
the chastisement for our peace was put upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon his servant the iniquity of us all. One would come to do the work of atonement. If you've been with us through the Gospel of John, you know it right away. When John the Baptist comes on to the scene, what does he say when he first sees Jesus for the first time? He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here is that one who will do what all of those bulls, all of those rams, all of those goats, all of those sheep, everything that, that has been killed for our sins, Jesus will do once for all and take them all away. In fact, in John's Gospel, many, many times Jesus is himself says, I came to do the work that the Father sent me to do. And that work is the work of atonement. Before we go to uh, Hebrews 9, please turn to Romans 3. Again, I apologize for all the... This is more topical, so we're going to look at several passages here. But please turn to Romans 3. Because what I want to highlight here in Romans 3 is this idea that what was being done in Israel's rituals was, was not intended to actually atone for the sins. It was a ritual that pointed the way to Christ. And in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21, Paul there here says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation by his blood. That word propitiation is an atoning sacrifice by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. That's the phrase I want to focus on. If the Day of Atonement could actually atone for sins, then it would, it, you wouldn't need Christ. You wouldn't need the work of Christ. But here, Paul says, look, because God passed over, those sins weren't actually atoned for, because God just sort of covered them, over with these blood, with the blood of these bulls and these goats, and he's sort of like, I'll hold off my wrath on them until my son comes. So in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Jesus comes as a propitiation. Jesus comes as an atoning sacrifice to do what these sacrifices could not in themselves do. And now please, if you will, turn to Hebrews 9 as we bring this to a close. Because what we see here in Hebrews 9 is the work of our great high priest. Whereas the high priest of Israel had to do all these things, Jesus comes as a greater high priest. Jesus comes to fulfill the work of the high priest. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author there calls Jesus the shadow of the good things to come. And in uh, Colossians 1.27, 
Paul calls Jesus the substance of the things to come. And what we see and saw in Leviticus 16 here is described in Hebrews chapter 9, thus showing that the work of Messiah does what only the Day of Atonement could point to. Jesus is going to fulfill that Day of Atonement. What the Day of Atonement was for the Old Testament people was fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ. And in, chapter, in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 9, the author of Hebrews talks about that old sacrifice. How the, the, the temple was, the, the tabernacle was a, a, a copy of the heavenly place. It was, it was the earthly sanctuary. You had an earthly priest go in there with all this blood, and he had to perform sacrifices for himself. And as we see in verses 9 and 10 there, this is very important. All of these things, it was symbolic. Day of Atonement was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. The Old Testament sacrifices could not atone for sin. It only pointed forward. It was symbolic for what would come. They could not actually atone. And then in verses 11 through 14, we see the, the superiority of the work of Jesus Christ, the great high priest, the superiority of the work of Messiah versus the Old Testament sacrificial system. The author speaks of how the blood of bulls and goats could not atone for sin. You need the precious blood of Christ, who he offers not in the earthly sanctuary. He takes his blood to the heavenly sanctuary. We looked at this passage, in fact, on Good Friday. And on the work of the cross, what Christ is actually doing is He is now entering into that heavenly temple to offer His own blood for the atonement of our sins. Verse 12, He enters into the tabernacle, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood. He entered the most holy place once. What was the Old Testament day of atonement? Year after year after year after year after year, so on and so forth, until Christ comes. Christ goes in there, and how many times does he do it? Once. Once. Once for all. Having obtained what? A ritual cleansing? No. An eternal redemption. Verse 13, For the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of heifer uh, sprinkling can sanctify for the purifying of the flesh. Note that the sacrificial system there was a fleshly purification. Again, it was for a ritual uh, purity. Verse 14, how much more? That is an argument the New Testament makes over and over again. If what was done before was satisfactory for this, how much more? How much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, not purify your flesh, but purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then verses 15 through 22 show the necessity of blood, how blood is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. But then Christ is the superior sacrifice. Christ is the superior sacrifice. You see that in 23 through 28, the, the greatness of the sacrifice of Christ. He enters into the holy place not made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself. He offers his blood, not the blood of bulls and goats. He goes once as opposed to every year. 
He makes atonement. He makes actual atonement for our sins. Therefore, what Adam failed to do in the garden, what the Old Testament sacrificial system could not do, Christ actually accomplished once and for all. And because of this priestly work of Messiah, now we have access. That that chasm that was created by the sin of Adam has now been bridged by the cross of Christ. And it's the only thing that could bridge that gap. And because of that, we have redemption. We've been set free. We have reconciliation. We have peace with God. And we have restoration. We now have access to God. The Day of Atonement was the high point of the Jewish calendar. And the word to atone actually means to cover. But the Old Testament sacrifices only covered sins in a symbolic way. They could not remove sins. Thus you need the sacrifice of Christ. As I started the message, right, we downplay sin. We, we look at our sin and we don't think it's as bad as it is, but our sin is actually, as R.C. Sproul would say, cosmic treason. So the work of Messiah then is our ultimate day of atonement. The work of Messiah fulfills everything that the Old Testament sacrificial system did. The work of Messiah solves our greatest need to have atonement, to have reconciliation, to have our sins covered, our sins removed. Death of Jesus Christ removes our sin. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses our sin. And His atonement makes full and perfect satisfaction for the wrath of God. And Because of this, then, we can draw boldly near to God in Christ. The work of Messiah is seen in His atoning work for God on our behalf. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we get ready to bring this service to a close, Lord, we are so thankful for the work of our Messiah, how He, through His sacrifice on the cross, how His precious blood solved our problem of sin. And I pray now, Lord, that we will look back on that and remember that, that our sins are covered. Our sins are gone. No longer do we have to worry about whether we are acceptable for you. If we have faith in Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf, we are now able to dwell with you, Lord. We have been made perfect. We have been cleansed. We have been atoned for. We have been brought into your family. And there's no sin that we can commit, Lord, first of all, that your son has not covered with his own blood, nor is there a sin that we can commit, Lord, that could ever Break your grip on us. So Lord, help us to remember the work of Christ on our behalf. And then in that work, Lord, in that salvation that we have, let us go forth and love one another, showing forth good works and being salt and light in the world around us. We pray this all in Jesus' name.